All right, well, welcome to week two of a short preaching series. I'm, I've got planned just this week and then next week, and then we'll be done with this thought of uh, unpopular. And we kind of started this last week thinking about how Christianity uh, intersects culture and how we as believers, how do we respond to that tension? How do we respond to the pushback where everything that we say and we do and we say that we believe and we stand for uh, kind of goes against the grain of what culture says is appropriate and okay. Right now, I told you last week that if you're a Christ follower, remember we made the distinction between that, if you're a Christ follower, you should feel this tension in every aspect of your life and every area of your life. You should feel this push and pull of culture versus Christianity and your belief and your faith and what the Bible says. Uh, you should feel how, how what you believe is against that grain about how you stand for and how you parent and how your marriage is and all the things that you allow and that you don't allow, the things you involve yourself in, the things you don't involve yourself in, are in essence unpopular, right? They're not the popular opinion. It's not what you want. Our theme verse should be on the screen. This is John 15, 18. Jesus speaking, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And this is Jesus essentially telling his disciples, listen, what you're going to do and what you're going to say and how you're going to approach the world, they're not going to get it. And they're going to hate you for it. But remember, they hated me too. Matter of fact, the early church was, uh, they were accused of being um, incestuous, because they called each other brother and sister. <laughs> that, that was the culture that they said, well, they must be uh, loving their brothers and sisters a little too much, right? They called, them, um, they called them atheists because in Rome, when when the Christian church stood up and said, we believe in one God, Rome with their pantheon of gods, they had hundreds of gods. They basically said, if you don't believe in all of them, then you don't believe in any of them. And so they called them atheists. And they're going, no, no, we're, we're, we're literally the, the original monotheists, right? We, we're, the, we're going back to the original one. You're, you're making up all these other things. They, they didn't get it. They thought they were, um, what's the word, inciting riots because they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't participate in the gladiator games. They wouldn't participate in all the festivals to all the pagan gods. They wouldn't do all these other things. And so they said, they are so uh, counterculture, they are rebellious at nature. And the church is going, really, we're not. We preach grace and love and forgiveness in Jesus. And, and if you just listen to our message, uh, then you'll understand. But the world hated them. And, and they had these words of Jesus. I think it's so incredible to remind them, listen, you know what? You're going to be hated. You're going to be unpopular. And for us, we have to remind ourselves that sometimes standing up for what's right goes against what culture says is okay. And, and you're going to have an unpopular belief. You're going to have an unpopular opinion. And, and I believe uh, Jesus is telling us in these verses, just you need to be prepared for that. You need to be prepared to be unpopular. And I know that today in the crowd that we've got that I'm speaking to a mixed bag of folks. Some of you um, may have always grown up being the popular kids. Some of you may have always grown up being the unpopular kids. I told you guys last week about my, my, my move from our little town in Missouri to Bryant. Uh, when I got to Bryant, it was, I was unpopular. I was pretty popular in our little town in Campbell because you know, I had all my teeth and, uh, and I knew how to speak. Uh, and so it kind of just kind of fit right in. You get to Bryant, and I, I remember I showed up to the first day of school. I'll never forget. I showed up the first day of school in a pair of acid wash jeans with elastic around the ankles and around the waist. I had a graphic tee on and a blue and green suede leather coat. 
had a, had a big old gap in my front teeth and braces on, and I had a little bit of a mullet left, and nobody else in Bryant dressed like that. Nobody else. Everybody else had on Jerbeau jeans. Y'all remember Jerbeau jeans, early 90s? Some of y'all are flashing back to those. Uh, Jerbeau jeans with starter jack, black starter jackets on with a Dallas Cowboy logo on the back of it. And everybody had their Jordan tennis shoes on. And, and I knew immediately that I did not fit in here. I was going to be unpopular, right? I, I knew that. Uh, I knew that intrinsically when I went to the cafeteria uh, and I walked into the cafeteria there were eight lines in the cafeteria eight serving lines I had no idea what was what because none of it was labeled but all the kids knew and so I just went through the first line and got what I got and I sat down at the table to eat because I, I saw people putting their backpacks on this table I thought well I'm, I'm gonna sit over here that's where people are gonna sit that was apparently the backpack table and I sat by myself eating with all these backpacks around me, just eating my burger and cheese and, and, and french fries. And so it was just, you know, I realized very quickly that I'm, some, of you, some of you grew up and like you had the hair and you had the cool car and you had all that kind of stuff. And I'm so proud of you. But, uh, but what we realize is that there's this tension between wanting to be, I mean, I didn't care. I, I did care. Eighth grade, I cared. I wanted to be popular. And the more I grew into it, I found my crew of people. I was talking to Bobby this morning. I, grew, I found my, my band people, right? I found those people, and I fit in there, and I, 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 I kind of I really loved that aspect. And, and I just kind of found my lane, and I got into it. We all eventually do that. But we feel this tension of wanting to be in the popular crowd, not wanting to be in the popular I remember the kid. Uh, oh, gosh, I can't remember his name now. I can see his face. On senior uh, parade day, we had a senior parade, uh, he drove uh, his dad's brand-new Viper in the senior parade. And, uh, and that just made everybody hate him even more. Uh, you know, he was just that kid. He was the popular. He always he was good-looking. He, you know, he just had it all. He was the, and, and then he showed up in that car, and everybody just wanted to throw rocks. But the best part about that, and it has nothing to do with my sermon, I'm just talking right now, is that it started to rain. And it was the Viper that didn't have the convertible top. You had to literally take the top off and put it in your garage. And so he had to leave school in the rain in his Viper. And then we all just pointed and laughed. Anyway, there's this idea of wanting to be popular. There's a pull and push. And even, even in our small circles, I realize that popularity and, and even the label of popular is relative. It's relative to who determines and what vantage points that person comes from determining popularity, right? And in Missouri, I was popular. In Bryant, I was not. And, and, and we allow other people the, the privilege of influence to determine what is and is not. Others who have no investment in our life, others who have no real connection to us and in all reality have enough issues of their own to tell us what is and is not popular. Instead, instead of looking to the one person who has authority over all creation to determine what's popular, who loves us on a level that we can't even comprehend and who expresses a genuine desire to be in deep relationship with us and knows us better than we know ourselves. At some point, church, we have to begin to ask ourselves the question of Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. It's on the screen. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul is telling us, listen, you can't expect to do both. You can't expect to please men and gain popularity and do all the things that they say is important or right 
and still be able to please God at the same time. It doesn't work like that. You can't love him and serve him and please him and be devoted to him and at the same time try to be popular. We want both. That's the pull of our hearts, but the reality is we can't, we're not afforded both. Jesus tells us they're going to hate you, but, but remember, they hated me too. And so last week we kind of talked about three uh, real in-your-face statements about uh, salvation and about some other things. This week, if you didn't watch last week, go back and rewatch that. This week we're going to do the same kind of thing. I've got three statements that are unpopular statements that are going to hit a little closer to the vest because we're going to talk about family and the cultural view of family and what family is and family is not. So uh, just be prepared to kind of turn with me. We're going to look at a couple of different passages of Scripture. Here's my number one uh, statement this morning. Marriage... Marriage is an intimate commitment of love and mutual submission between a husband and a wife. There are layers to this statement. We're going to unpack those. Marriage is an intimate commitment. See, if you've got your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 19. Jesus has been talking about divorce, and the Pharisees are trying to catch him in this like uh, legalistic loophole, if you will. And Jesus quotes back Genesis chapter 2 and the creation of Adam and Eve. And let's, let's read his reply. This is Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 through 6. And he says, haven't you read, which is kind of a, a, a slap in the face of them because he knows that they have, but he's just kind of trying to draw them into a little bit deeper, more purposeful conversation. Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? Now, I'm going to stop there because that's an unpopular statement in itself right now, Right? That he made them male and female. There are two genders, male and female. And as much as you in today's culture can decide whether you want to be one or the other, genetically down to your bones, you are either male or female. I saw an interview online this week where a guy was talking about it. And he said, listen, this is the reason why we can dig up people's bones from thousands of years ago. And we can't tell what their ideology was. We can't tell what they identified as. But we can tell whether they are a man or a woman because it's in their bones, right? It's genetically a part of who you are. There are two, male and female. It keeps going. He said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. This intimate commitment is this idea of no longer two but one it goes beyond a physical romantic relationship with your spouse obviously we talk about marriage we talk about those things it's an important aspect of it but it's not the only aspect of it God does something supernatural in a marriage relationship that bonds two individuals together and listen this oneness is supposed to be an earthly tangible example of the oneness of God the Father and God the Son, right? Jesus says over and over on, in John, John chapter 10, verse uh, 30, I and the Father are one. John 10, 38, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, right? It's Jesus and the Father, the Son and the Father are exactly the same, right? Paul says he is the exact representation of the Father, they are exactly the same. And you and your spouse are supposed to reflect that kind of oneness. It's no longer you and me. It's us. That's, that's why personal sin 
personal sin in a marriage uh, relationship in a married individual's life is never just affecting that one person. It affects both of them because they're both one person. It's not just Matt. It's Matt and Jess. It's not just Doug. It's Doug and Debbie. It's not just Dennis. It's, it's Dino and Laffy Caffy, right? That's what my kids call her like, forever. I don't know why. It's, it's not just one of us. It's both of us always together. And I'm just going to ask this and leave it. If if someone were looking at your marriage, someone on the outside were looking at your marriage, would they see a good example of that father-son oneness? Would they see that kind of unity and togetherness? And let me just say this because it has to be said. Proximity does not equate intimacy. Just because you're close to each other doesn't mean you're in right relationship with each other. We've got a lot of Christian married couples who are really good teammates and roommates, and that's about it. We're close to each other. Of course, of course we're spending time together. We live in the same house. That doesn't mean that you're spending time together. It doesn't mean that you're in this intimate kind of relationship with each other. We're supposed to be one with each other. So it's an intimate commitment of love and mutual submission. And that's the part that uh, everybody knows that, that we were probably going there. If you've got your Bible, go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 is the favorite verse everybody likes to argue when it comes to this idea of submission in a marriage context. Ephesians 5.21 on the screen says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it gives you the context for everything that we're about to read. We don't submit to each other in a marriage relationship because we are so holy and so good that I'm going to show you how I'm going to submit. That's not why we do it. We don't submit to one another because your spouse is so worthy of your submission. That's not why we do it. We do it out of reverence for Christ. Christ is essentially deserving of our mutual submission. Christ has earned our submission to each other. Let's keep reading verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now let me just tell you this. As controversial as a statement as that is in our culture today, There's something that's spreading throughout evangelicalism called feminist theology. Feminist theology basically says that it's a patriarchal hierarchy has systematically diminished and suppressed the role of women in church. That it says that the idea of submission is only taught because a man wrote the book of Ephesians. And that for me, a man, to stand on this stage and to teach this Bible verse is to support some outdated ideology that continues to degrade women and their role in faith and in church. And what I have to say to that is read your Bible. Read your Bible and read over and over again how Jesus affirmed the role of women in faith. 
how he affirmed the role of women through every aspect of his life and ministry. Read about how Mary sat at Jesus' feet while everybody else was distracted. Read about how women are the ones who found the empty tomb. We know that's true because if it weren't, they would never have been listed as the ones to find the empty tomb. They didn't have the social status to be appropriated that kind of responsibility. We know it happened because they were the ones who found it. Read about the Samaritan woman who found grace and acceptance and forgiveness. Read about Lydia and Phoebe and Lois and Eunice. Read about these ladies who foundationally laid some amazing groundwork for the church to build its foundation. Listen, these ladies continued to do all things through the church, and Jesus affirmed them at every step of the way. And know this, that when Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, and the Ephesian church read that verse, that verse was not controversial. Every woman there heard it read aloud and said, well, I'll submit to your husbands. They all went, of course, that's what we're supposed to do. That's what we have to do, right? That was not a controversial verse. The controversy surrounds the next verse. Let's read it. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. And we go, really? That's con- it was world-shaking when it was written. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own body that statement was revolutionary that statement changed the culture of not just Ephesus but as the church as a whole husbands loved your wives as Christ loved the church love their wives as their own body. This, this changes the landscape of faith. No longer is this this patriarchal rule. This is a mutual submission to each other. That you are continually submitting to your wife and your wife is continually submitting to you. This is where you're trying to serve one another and love one another and consistently place the needs of the other person above your own. So when Jess and I went through our marriage counseling years and years ago, I'll never forget, the guy looked at us and said, if you try to outgive her and if she tries to outgive you, you guys will be fine. And that's, the, that's literally the lessons taught through Ephesians chapter 5. It's mutual submission. But what do we do? We keep score, right? Well, you did this, so I'm going to do this, and I don't care what you think about it, because that's what you did, and I didn't like it, and so I'm going to do this, and I don't care if you like it or not. We hold things over the heads of our spouses. We point the finger. We hold grudges. We grit our teeth and dig in our heels, and we're going to do what we want to do no matter what. Where is mutual submission in that? I'm going to say these with all the love in the world. If you are more concerned about being right than you are about being submissive, if you are more focused on what you want than what they want, if you are keeping some mental list of all the times that you've been accommodating and patient and kind and all the times that they have not, if in any social setting you speak negatively about your spouse, 
Or if one partner does not have the freedom to express their feelings in a safe environment without judgment, shame, and condemnation, then your marriage does not reflect a biblical definition of marriage. There should never be a point where you speak ill of your spouse to someone else. Can we joke? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll pick at Jess. Jess will pick at me. That is totally on the table. It happens all the time in our family. As a matter of fact, as soon as I get home from church, even today, my kids will not hit the front door without saying, Dad, you fumbled over this word. Good job, idiot. Right? Because that's what we do. That's just part of our dynamic. Okay? But never, ever should you ever speak ill of your spouse to somebody else. That's not mutually submissive. That's degrading. That's rude. Never, ever should you be concerned about being right in an argument. I don't care if it hurts your feelings. I'm right. Are you kidding me? Mutual submission is a continual putting the other person's needs under your own. I've said this before and I'll say it again and it hurts. But we, as believers, we take public stances against... It's transgenderism and homosexual marriage and all that kind of stuff. Okay, We take very public, hard stances all under this umbrella of protecting the biblical definition of marriage. All the while not realizing that we, we as believers have done more to, to destroy the sanctity of marriage than the homosexual community ever has. Because we are not good examples of Christ because we are not in good relationship with our husbands and wives. We are not good examples of that oneness of the Father and the Son. And we can stand on the street corners and we can yell about all that, but our own lives don't reflect what biblical marriage is supposed to be about. It's an intimate commitment of love and mutual submission between a husband and a wife. Here's my second hard statement. The primary role of the spiritual instruction of your children is not the responsibility of the church. Hear what I said. The primary role of the spiritual instruction of your children is not the responsibility of the church. The church plays a role, but it is not the primary role. Meaning this, for believers, believers... If the only spiritual instruction your kids are getting is here, then you're parenting wrong. The only spiritual instruction they're getting, the only spiritual context that they're getting for the world that they're growing up in, because tell me, the world they live in now is not the same world I lived in. It's not the same world your parents lived in. If the only context that they're getting to, to, to safely navigate that world is here at the church, then you're parenting wrong. I say that because believers, it's our responsibility. If you are, listen, I'm just, we've got a mixed bag. If you're an unbeliever, if you're just maybe here and you're trying to figure things out and you don't really know where you sit with God and you bring your kids to church, you're doing the greatest thing for them. And I would never point a finger and say, you're doing it wrong. I'm saying, you're doing it right. You bring them to the best place you can bring them. But if you're a believer and you know what the Word says and you know how to live and you know how to parent and you know what these kids are facing and the only instruction they're getting is here, then you're doing it wrong. 
Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Everybody knows this passage of Scripture. We go here all the time. Anytime we talk about family context, we always go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 because it's almost the literal definition of family discipleship all for us right here. This is Old Testament. This is Moses uh, giving the instruction of the law. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The Lord God, the Lord is one. This is the Shema, right? We've talked about this in here before. This is the, probably the most important Jewish prayer in Scripture is the Shema. As a matter of fact, they say this a certain amount of times a day. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. These commandments are to be on your, they should be your very heartbeat, right? Impress them on your children. Who's he talking to? He's talking to families. He's not talking to the church. He's talking to the Jewish families. Listen, this is your job. This should be your responsibility. Impress this on your children. Parents, your kids should be learning about who God is and who Jesus is and how to apply Scripture in their everyday lives from you. You should be modeling that behavior. You guys see this is literally the term for it. It's called modeling. You see dads out in the yard mowing and the, the kids behind them with a little bubble mower, right? Because they want to be out doing what dad's doing. We have pictures of our boys growing up where I'm sitting on the couch and watching TV and kind of just zoned out. And, and, and Brody, or Jack's one, is beside me and they're literally setting like me. They are trying to model behavior after their father. And if the only thing that they're getting is how to mow the yard or how to swing a baseball bat or how to throw a football or how to kill a deer, then I'm missing an opportunity to pour into them things that are never going to learn without me doing it. It literally says, talk about them when you sit at home. When's the last time you had a deep spiritual conversation at your house? When's the last time you had dinner around the dinner table? And I get it. Summer, all over the place. Grab a hot dog. I don't even care. Popsicle? Sure, that's dinner tonight. Whatever. But when's the last time you sat around the table and actually had a deep spiritual conversation? When's the last time you tried to bring context around something that your kid's going through that's rooted not just in your opinion but in what God's Word says? Because the reality is your kids are craving it. They crave that kind of relationship and deep influence from you. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that your 15-year-old is going to come up and open a Bible and kneel at your feet and say, Oh, Father, I beseech you, please instruct me on the words of the Lord. That's not what I'm saying. That's never going to happen. If it does, you've got a weird kid, and that's okay, but it's just not going to happen. But what is going to happen is that, that they're going to face things in their life probably at an earlier age than you ever expected them to have to face it, and you need to be there with spiritual instruction to help them navigate it. Here's what I know. I know that 
even in our own history. 2020, everything shut down. We all know that. Uh, uh, the pandemic shut everything down. We didn't have uh, kids camp. We had no student camp. We had no VBS, right? Those three summer activities were completely off the book. We weren't even meeting inside. We were outside or we were in the gym or we were uh, online, right? 2021, we, we squeezed in a three-day student camp in Oklahoma. Jessica and I did it. We pulled out some old tricks from uh, the Panama days that back when I was doing student ministry, and she was, she's always helps me organize that kind of stuff. And so uh, we, we went, and we had a great time. It was a lot of fun. As soon as we got back, it ramped up again, and we canceled uh, children's camp, and we canceled VBS. We did take-home VBS boxes that year, remember? 2022, this summer, finally, we were able to do a full student camp, a full kids camp, and a full VBS. And as of today, we've seen five kids be saved and two more asking very hard questions. It's going to probably lead to their salvation. Five, seven, there's seven people all together beginning to connect the dots of spiritual, like, real-life scenarios into who God is and what He wants for us. And that's incredible. Seven over the past three weeks. We did all this in July. I don't know why, but we did it all in July. Student camp, church camp, NVBS. And it all happened in seven kids that are normal attenders that come to our church all the time said, I need to get saved. I need to make this real. I need to join the church. I need to be baptized. And we're going to celebrate all that. But here's what I'm going to say. It's going to hurt your feelings, church. We have to ask the question, are these kids who are coming to Jesus, going home to parents who are living out their faith? Or are they going home to parents who are just playing a church game? Because hear me, parents. You, you are the spiritual development. You are responsible for the spiritual development of your children. It's you. If they're learning one thing at church and then going home and it's not being modeled for them in daily life, then you're raising kids that are going to separate faith from real life. And you're failing at your job as a parent. Yeah, you love them. And oh yeah, you're going to provide for them and you're going to give them beyond everything that they need, right? You're going to give them beyond. But what they need most is they need a mom and they need a dad who love Jesus and who live out their faith. Who read their Bible and who actually try to apply it to their life. Deuteronomy 6, 9 says, write this on the door frames of your houses. Your faith should literally bind the bones of your home together. And too often we got moms and dads who are just playing at it. And they got just as much Jesus as they want, and they marginalize their faith down to church attendance and being a good person, and who use God when they need Him and ignore Him when they don't. And your children are paying the price for your spiritual apathy. Your children are paying the price. What's incredible about all this? Is when Deuteronomy was written, and all this has kind of taken place, the people who have been wandering the desert for 40 years are standing on the banks of the Jordan River. They're about to go in and take over the land that God's given them, finally. And he says, bind this on the door frames of your 
houses and on your gates. See, these people have been living in tents for 40 years. They didn't have houses. They didn't have anything that was structurally sound in their life. They've been living in flimsy, portable tents for 40 years. And some, guys, I'm, some of you are still living in tents. And your tents are propped up by trying to be the cool parent or maybe trying to allow things that you know you probably shouldn't allow, but you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. You want to be the party house or the fun house, or maybe you want to provide the alcohol. Maybe you don't want to, maybe you don't want to push too hard because you don't want to make them mad and you don't want to upset them. You'd rather be their friend than be their parent. And you're living in tents. And Deuteronomy 6 says, write this on the door frames of your house. Have something stronger than what you've been living in in the past. Do something more stable and more concrete than what you've been living in for the last 40 years of your life. Do something that's going to make a difference in the life of your families. Quit making them pay for your spiritual apathy. This leads us to my last point. Marriage is an intimate commitment of love and mutual submission between the husband and the wife. The primary role of spiritual instruction of your children is not the responsibility of the church. Number three, men, quit making excuses and step up and lead your family. Can I just talk to the guys just for a minute? We just read in Ephesians chapter 5 that the husband's the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. 1 Corinthians eleven thirteen 13 says, As the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands should honor their wives as the weaker Vessel. If you go all the way back to creation and the fall of man, Genesis chapter 2 and verse chapter 3, God gives Adam instruction, don't do this. Eve is deceived and eats, and God holds Adam responsible. Because Adam was the head. He's supposed to be the leader. He's supposed to be taking charge here. And I see this all the time, and I use this verse all the time. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13 through 14 says this, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let everything you do be done in love. Guys, you should write this verse down and look at it and read it every day of your life. You should put it somewhere where you're going to see it. Put it on your desk at work. Put it on your truck, on the dash of your truck. You put it somewhere where you're going to see this verse on a regular basis. Because if you don't hear anything, hear this. Real men are these things. Real men are on alert, meaning that we look out for what's going to potentially harm our family. If someone was trying to break into your house, you would step, hopefully, you would step up and defend that house. Listen, we're allowing things in that we know are not good, that we know are going to lead nowhere good, that are going to set our children and our families up for disaster later, but we want to be popular, and so we allow it. Dads, what are you allowing your sons to be involved in? What are you allowing your sons to watch? What are you allowing your daughters to wear and to emulate and to idolize? Who are you allowing in your house? Sometimes what we got to be on the alert for is not what, it's a who. Who's coming into my house? Who's, who's claiming authority over things that they don't have any authority over? Who's influencing that they have no power to influence? Are you on the alert when it comes to your family's future? Are you, are you spending time together? How about, how about what are you spending your money on? Are you saving your money? That's on the alert. I've got a plan. I'm working to, to provide and protect my family. 
On the, are you on the alert about what is and is not appropriate speech and behavior and attitude? I did student ministry for almost 20 years. I saw kids come in, had the worst attitude, and would speak to their parents like they were dogs. And mom and dad just shrugged their shoulders and walk off. Like, kidding me? How's that kid going to learn to be submissive in a job? Where he can't talk to his boss like that and he gets fired. He's going to learn the lessons of what this real life looks like and not what you're pretending it is. Are you you setting the alert about what's going to get your family's best? Where you prioritize things? I believe it's time for men to get their head out of the sand when it comes to what's going on with our wives. Listen, some of our wives are struggling. Struggling. Trying to balance all the things that they're balancing, and their husbands are just kind of just meandering through life, not helping. When's the last time you really checked on your wife? And not just a pat on the shoulder, how you doing? Hope you're good. What's for dinner? It's got to be deeper than that. We've got to clue in. We've got to know how she feels and what she's feeling and why she's feeling that. We've got to stop being oblivious and hoping things just turn out okay. Real men are on alert, which means they are proactive in defending the things that matter most. A couple of weeks ago, we read Nehemiah where, where they were building the walls by families, remember, and they were armed, but they couldn't, they couldn't keep all the wall defended all at the same time, and there were weaker families versus stronger families, and so the person with the trumpet would blow the trumpet, sound the alarm, and everybody would come and rally around that family and help defend the wall section that they were building. Some of you need to be sounding the alarm. You stop being so prideful and say, you know what, I need some help. can't figure this out. I don't know what to do. This is what we're going through, and it's hard, and it's so heavy. That's what the church is for. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're on alert. Sometimes that means we're blowing the alarm. Next, he says to stand firm in the faith, because you, dads, you, men, are the spiritual leaders of your family. If God were to give your family a grade, he would not look at anybody else's other than yours. And most of us would be failing. You are the ones who set the standard for spiritual development. You are the ones who are supposed to be in the Word and living out your faith and praying uh, for yourself and for your wife and for your kids. You should be modeling that behavior that when your kids get up in the morning, they see Dad drinking a cup of coffee, doing whatever he's doing, and reading his Bible. Because that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be setting the standard in biblical discipleship in our family so that when our kids come to us with questions, we can answer them with informed Biblical solutions. We're to prioritize God above all things. Quit waiting for our wives to do it. Quit making excuses of why you can't do it. And set the example. We are to be firm in the faith. I love the beginning of the book of Joshua. 
Think about being Joshua. Joshua's the guy who comes in right after Moses. Moses is the greatest prophet Israelites had ever known. He was the man. He was parting the Red Sea in the eyes of the Israelites. They thought he was doing all that. He was providing all this food. He was the voice of God. He literally would walk into the tabernacle and then come out and have to veil his face because his face was shining because he was in the presence of God. And now Joshua's supposed to come in and lead after him. Moses goes up on the mountain and dies. And God looks at Joshua and says, one thing over and over and over and over and over again. I'll never leave you. Be strong and courageous. I'll never leave you. Be strong and courageous. Look, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. It's on the screen. You'll have to turn there. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it night and day, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. What was the key of Joshua's spiritual leadership? Meditate on the word of God. Same. Same. You're scared to death to lose your family? Yeah, join the crowd. Meditate on the Word of God and you'll be able to do it. Be a man of the Word and you will be able to do it. I'm gonna, we're out of time, so I'm going to run through these last three statements. Act like men. Be strong. Let everything you do uh, be done in love. You know what a real man does? He loves. You know what real strength is? It's the ability to express love well. Love your wives enough to submit to them. Love your kids enough to disciple them. Love your family enough to lead them. Love God enough to live for Him. Quit making excuses and step up and lead your family. And I'm going to say this because it has to be said. Ladies, if your husband won't, if he just won't, he refuses to step into the role that God has given him, he will not lead then unfortunately it falls to you. It's not fair. But God knows and God sees and God honors. I'm sorry that he won't. But just because he doesn't doesn't mean you don't have to. Men, don't let that be the case. Quit allowing your wives to lead spiritually in your home and you step up and do it. So where does all this leave us besides out of time? A healthy biblical understanding of Christian marriage, family discipleship, and leadership should leave us on our knees asking God forgiveness. It should lead us broken. It should lead us to repentance. I'm going to read one more passage of Scripture and we're going to be done. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is just right before our family discipleship verse we just read a while ago. Verse 32 says this, So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in the way the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. We've been challenged to do what he says to do, to stay focused, to obey And it says that when you do those things, so that you may live. Man. That leads to real life living. We get distracted, we turn. 
the right and the left. He says, stay focused on what matters most. Your marriage deserves it. Your kids deserve it. Your families deserve it. And they deserve us to be living it. If you would stand with me, TJ's going to come and we have just a moment of invitation for you guys to respond to what God's maybe even kind of pressed on you this morning. Could be issues in uh, how you're dealing with your marriage. It could be issues in how you're dealing with your kids. It should be issues with how you're allowing things or disallowing things. It could be a thousand different things. But when we look at what Scripture says, we've got to stop playing nice about it and be real. That's what this whole series is about. There's no game when it comes to faith. This is either faith or it's not real faith. It's either we're going to live it or we're not. Either God's important or he's not. And too often, I think we just walk on through and we just kind of bebop along and hope that we get by good enough and Jesus calls us to deep surrender. Let me pray for us. If you need to come and pray at the altar you can if you need to come talk to me I'd be happy to do that if you need to come ask questions about how do I disciple or how do I fix this or this is what's going on in our marriage I'd love to help walk you through all those things I do that on a regular basis nobody's perfect I'm not perfect I don't get it right all the time but we're striving for something bigger maybe that's the push that God's got in your life this morning just to strive for something deeper than where you are. Let's pray together and you respond. Father, we love you and we thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for the truth of your word and how sometimes it hits us right in the mouth and sometimes it's easy to swallow and sometimes it's not. God, I think today we talk about families and the struggles and the things that we're up against. God, I know that there's a lot of us who just feel overwhelmed, maybe even underprepared, or possibly, Father, we just feel like we're swamped and we don't know where to even begin. God, We begin with you. We begin with a confession and repentance and moving forward in what you have for us. So help us, God, to make those steps. Help us to to be obedient when we're against the grain, even if it's not the popular thing to do. We, We are only looking to please you and no one else. God, be real with us as we respond. These next few moments, God, just... Help us to set aside pride, maybe even some hesitation, God. We can just set all that aside and respond to what you're telling us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys come as TJ sings.